0: Nine. We are today. I actually changed the title of the sermon because I actually changed my whole sermon this week, um, which is not something I do usually. Usually I write well ahead of time um, because that's just kind of how my mind works. I like things to percolate around a bit. Um, but today is actually part two from last week An Unbelieving heart. Uh, only six verses, or excuse me, only seven verses this time, but it is, uh, it is one of those passages that really wraps up everything that came before it, and last week we had quite the extensive narrative with regards to the man who was born blind, whom Jesus healed with creative power by spitting on dirt and creating eyes out of dirt, remarkable uh, creation ability, and we saw that applied to the way in which John is showing us to respond to the gospel of Christ. The word and the works of Christ are to be responded to in a certain manner. And then we also saw that contrasted with how the Pharisees were responding. There was, there was no way and nothing that could be done that would bring them to admit that Christ is indeed who he says he is and that he is worthy of their full acceptance and faith. John includes this message, we talked about it last time, specifically so that we can analyze our hearts as readers of this great book. Remember, John, everything he is writing is spending it so that you, reader, might believe and live. Every reader of the Gospel of John throughout history has been faced with whether or not they have a believing or an unbelieving heart. And I will bring that to us yet again today, because here we will see the outcome, because there's an epilogue to the story that the last verses of chapter 9 give us, and it does a callback to everything that happened, well, you're going to see it. Um, And here we have Jesus coming back to the man who was healed of his blindness, and he asks him a very special question, and here is the delineation between how the world turns. So I want you to stand in honor of God and his word and join me. Not that long of a passage today, but boy, does it have ramifications. John nine thirty-five through 41. Remember at the end of the last story, the blind man was cast out of the synagogue. Verse 35 is where we pick it up. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Father, we seek to understand and love this passage. We know that both are outside of our grasp, without your Holy Spirit bringing illumination to our hearts and life and light to the dark recesses of our imaginations. Father, we pray that your spirit who inspired these words so many years ago and preserved them throughout the history of your church, may he illumine them to our hearts this day. Father, not only that we seek to understand these things and that we understand them fully, but Father, that we would love your word. A far greater miracle. Father, that we would seek another miracle in its wake, that each other would love your word. We pray this for all of us here. We pray this for those who are not able to join with us. We pray this for your church in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it's nowhere near as long as the one from last week. The one from last week is extensive. uh, But it is certainly a follow-up, as you can see. After the fact of what had happened... Remember, the story is that this man who was born blind, Jesus came along his way. Everyone who he was, he was a beggar sitting outside the synagogue. All this was going on. Jesus comes up to him and he heals him in a very unique way by spitting on the ground, mixing up mud with his spit and slathering it on his eyes and saying, go to the pool of Siloam and wash and then come back. And he came back seeing and then the Pharisees could not have that. They didn't know what to do. This guy has been in, the, in front of the synagogue. He's, he's a grown man. He has to live with his parents, it most likely is. He's probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, the way it's written. Everybody knows who he is, and now everyone can plainly see that he is the man who was born blind and no longer is blind. The Pharisees cannot have this kind of a response to it because if it's so, then they are wrong about Jesus. Jesus. And so they have to find out who this guy is. You're not the one who was born blind. There's no way, because you can see. And he's like, well, yeah, yeah. And they said, you know what? We don't believe you. We're going to to your parents. So they go to his parents, same synagogue. You, is this your son that was born blind? How is it that he can see? And they go, yeah, he's our son. Yeah, he was born blind, but that's where the answers stop. We don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. He's of age. Go ask him. So go back to him. Tell us straight up, we know this man's a sinner. He can't do it. And the guy is just flabbergasted at their response. He comes back and he goes, you know, what an astonishing thing. You have to know that opening the eyes of a blind man is not something that has ever happened since the creation of the world. That is a specifically unique, creative act that only Christ did up to this point. And in this story, what ends up happening, I don't have to tell you, we were here, we worked through it all. The Pharisees get straight up nasty with him after he says this. He says it in verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They asked him and said, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us. And so they cast him out of the synagogue. The first man in all of history that was healed from a condition born blind. Let me just put it to you this way. If, if your theology, your view of God cannot handle something breaking, something that you made up about it, your approach to God and your approach to his revelation is off. There's not to be an unbendingness to this where, for instance, if I come to a section of Scripture, which is equivalent with the works of Christ, the words in the works of Christ, if I come up to something in Scripture and it shows me where I'm wrong, I best take the submissive role in that transaction. I best come to Scripture as a servant. And if it comes to me and it says, look, Tim here's something where you say this, here's something where you hold this, and that's from your culture and from nowhere else, and Scripture says the exact opposite of what you expect, what am I to do at that point? What the Pharisees did, which is to reject it and say, no, no, can't have that because that changes this. And that's what John is doing with this passage. He's saying, reader... How are you going to interact with the works and the words of Christ? Are you going to respond the same way? Let I mean, look at the way it ramps up. There's two different ramp-ups in this story. The blind man's increasing awareness. The way he refers to Jesus. Listen to it. It's a man called Jesus, is how he starts by referring to him. And then it ramps up to, he is a prophet. And then it ramps up to, he is from God. And then in today's passages, Lord, I believe. You see that? Wonderful trajectory. You can't fault him for ignorance about who Jesus is because he had never met him before. But as soon as he does, he goes, Man called Jesus, a prophet, obviously sent from God. Now he's Lord and I believe in him. That's a wonderful trajectory. That's what John's trying to get us to see. What's the other trajectory? Because he gives us the opposite the Pharisees' responses. This man is not from God. That's where they start. This man is a sinner. Another knockdown. We do not know where he comes from. And then it finally ends up with, are we also blind? Is that what you're saying? Everything that they respond to is with a skepticism based on begging the question. They assume they are right, therefore everything else is wrong. And what John is saying is that is not the way that we approach the revelation of God. When the scriptures or when Christ himself challenge us, we are to come with servant hearts. The word and the works of Jesus are all the same. And it presses upon us how it is we see this life, how it is we see our relationship to Christ even. And in the passage we see as Jesus, uh, here in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he came and found him. Don't pass by that phrase too quick. Don't don't pass by that too quick. This man's entire life just got undone. He has, even though he can see now, no marketable skills, no job. And the day he was healed, and the day he believed in Christ, and the day he could finally see where his parents wouldn't even take his side because they backed down in cowardice, in the very day that changed his life, he was thrown out of his community, thrown out of his synagogue. The only skill he had was begging. Now you can see that's fine, but it's not like you can immediately go into woodworking or construction. He doesn't, he's never used his hands for things like this. And so he gets put into a situation where he is absolutely still hopeless, And if he is to continue living with his parents, they would be cast out of the synagogue. And so, now I'm going to go into opinion or conjecture here, probably had to leave his parents home. Because once somebody was put out of the synagogue, you cannot associate with them. The Pharisees were trying to destroy him, And they're doing a pretty good job. And so Jesus comes back to town and finds him. Jesus heard mention that they had cast him out, and he came and found him. And he doesn't ask him, you know, do you need food? Do you need some money? No, what does he ask him? What does he ask him? Verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That strike you as an odd question? That strike you as an odd thing to ask in that situation? He was just cast out of the synagogue. His community is over. His family has to separate from him. And Jesus comes and is talking about theology? Why would he bring this up? For those of you who are familiar with the prophecies of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, it should start to make a little bit more sense of what Jesus is suppressing upon him. He just lost his entire community. He just lost everything that could bring him some stability to his life, finally, now that he can see. But now, as his eyes are open, he's realizing how many people are around him that are blind. And Jesus comes back and finds him and just talks to him about the Son of Man. Now, Jesus has never spoken to anybody yet in his ministry with this level of clarity about who he is. Nobody. He has said things, before Abraham was, I am. That is a direct claim to divinity, but not with this specificity. He calls himself the son of man here in this passage. And what he is expressing to this man is, do you believe in the son of man? And it's a callback straight to Daniel 7. The son of man is someone who is of the children of mankind coming and being presented before the ancient of days and taking the seat of the throne of God. Humanity being risen on some level to the level of divinity in some amalgam that we couldn't figure out until Jesus came. And we realize that he who is truly God is also truly man. He who is truly man is also truly God and brings heaven and earth together. And so what he's expressing here is saying it is not so much that you were just cast out of this community. You've joined to the Son of Man. And there's a community in heaven far grander than all of this. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now this man who was born blind, who is now able to see, does not say no. He comes down and goes, tell me who he is you're the one who can heal a man born blind. Let me know who the Son of Man is. I'm all in. Because the synagogue threw me out. My parents won't even defend me. My teachers, my Bible teachers won't even defend me. I am alone in the world. Who else would I go to? And Jesus says, you have seen him. Not only have you seen him, which is, by the way, a statement of seeing for the blind man with regards to his spiritual vision here, but it is he who is speaking to you. You're looking at him. Jesus directly claiming to be the fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel 7. The one in whom all of our hopes would one day rest. The one to whom all allegiance will be given the one who bears both marks of divinity and humanity. And he is expressing this man, the one who's you're expecting, the son of man who's going to unite heaven and earth, you're looking at him. And then the man's response changes. First word, Lord. He knows who he's looking at probably one of the first ones that finally wrapped his head around the incarnation includes God walking around as one of us. What was promised to Joseph and Mary, that Emmanuel, God with us, is finally walking around with us. Now we have a stranger seeing it. He's not just the Messiah, not just some political leader. He's not just the answer to our questions. He is the question that we should be asking all along and weren't even asking. Lord, I believe. We're going to hold off in the last part of his description of what he does here. Why is that important? Obviously, a sermon called An Unbelieving Heart. We're going to be contrasting it with the Pharisees here in just a second. But for him, this is what John is telling us to do. Look at this man. Look at his belief. Look at where he goes with the information about Christ. Look at how he treats it. Does that remind you of your heart? Or are you reminded of your heart looking at the Pharisees? John puts it up as a bifurcation of the road. What you do with Christ really shows you what Christ is going to do with you. And that is typically how it's put out, trying to appeal to us. What will you do with Christ? What will you do with Christ? The biblical teaching is, what is Christ going to do with you? There is a day of judgment that's coming, and it will be judged on the form of his righteousness. God has given promise of this by raising him from the dead. This is how the apostles preached it. It is not appealing to us about what we would do with Christ, but what we do with Christ reveals to us what our heart is. If Christ is easily cast aside for the betterment of something that is more familiar to me, if we would rather a Christ that's all jokey and happy rather than a Christ who is angry with sin to overturn money changers' tables and angry with unrepentant hearts to the point of calling down judgment and woes to Bethsaida and Chorazin, and we would rather just somebody who is nice and has kind eyes and everything else is good and he doesn't condemn anyone, but then we read the Gospels and we see a completely different picture than that, what do we do? Do we submit to the words of Christ? Or to choose our own path? Jesus, when he finds this man who was healed of blindness, asks him if he believes on the Son of Man. The man asks who the Son of Man is, and Jesus reveals to him that it's him. And the man restal, responds by calling Jesus Lord and worshiping him. Christ's question is about his belief. And he answers back and says, Lord, I do believe. He says it is just about his identity. And I think this is one of the things I got so wrong growing up in the church. That belief is just agreeing that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not that. It includes that. But believing on the Lord Jesus is so much more than admitting who he is. Satan knows who he is. That doesn't save him. The demons know God as one and they tremble. That doesn't save them. Having right theology does not save. There's a lot of people with right theology that are not Christians. A lot. So what saves? What makes the difference between the Pharisees and this man? What is his Belief. Isn't that an important question if you're in this passage? And when we see John, what does he say? That you may believe and live. If it truly is the line of demarcation between life and death, shouldn't we be clear on what that is? I grew up hearing the word faith so often that it just kind of became like a a buzzing sound in my ear. I didn't even know what in the world we're talking about. Do you have faith in Christ? It's like, I know who he is. faith let me ask it in the old testament way do you trust the lord with all your heart do you lean not on your own understanding and acknowledge the lord in all your ways and he will direct your paths let me put it in the new testament ways believe upon the lord jesus christ his death and his resurrection and you will find life The New Testament teaching on faith is simple. It includes agreeing with these things, knowing what they are, knowing who Jesus is, admitting that they are true, and then committing yourself to them. Let me give you a classic picture of it. A chair. Me believing that it is a chair and just saying, yep, I know it's a chair, is not me sitting in the chair. Let me give you my picture of it. You're in a shipwreck, floating around the sea. It's all this random wood floating around you. Things that might be able to float a little bit but cannot support you. And then there's a lifeboat that kind of drifts by. Tell me, please, what faith is in this situation. Going up to the lifeboat and saying, oh boy, that's a lifeboat. What a nice lifeboat. Look at, look at the woodwork. It's really pretty. It's got all this stuff. It's, it's waterproof. It's sound. It's floating. Best lifeboat ever. Knocks on it. It's great. And you just stay floating in the water next to it. I fear many people in churches are in this situation. Look at that beautiful lifeboat. Look how marvelous it is. It is the best lifeboat. Only lifeboat for me. Knock on it and just kind of sit there and float next to it. I'm, I'm safe, right here. Meanwhile, under the water, there's sharks circling around you. Faith is not admitting that Christ is a good savior. It is not agreeing that he truly is. It's getting in the boat. Only then will salvation be had. It's the picture of the ark all over again. You can be next to the ark, but that's not going to save you from the floodwaters. It doesn't work like that. You can be next to the rock and still standing on sand. It's not going to save you when the waters come and the winds blow. Faith is getting into the lifeboat. And faith is a gift. It is not something we manufacture. Naturally, we don't want to get in the lifeboat. We want to see if we can tread the water. We want to see if we can find a piece of driftwood that's sufficient enough for us so that we don't have to answer to the maker of the lifeboat. We want to save ourselves. And the picture is that the Pharisees are here floating on little pieces of driftwood trying to keep their heads above the water and saying, Don't get in the lifeboat. We know that that's wrong because it's nothing like ours. Right, it's nothing like yours. It's so much better. It's so much better. They're saying, We will cast you out of the synagogue if you get into that lifeboat. And he's just like, I'm already in it. And he gets cast out of the synagogue. What of it? And what Jesus does is he comes in and says, And you can hear the subtext here. The man must have been absolutely freaking out about his life. I have no marketable skills. I have no community. And I have no family. And I have no home. And Jesus walks up to him. And he just asks him one question. Do you believe on the Son of Man? And he's like, I don't even know who that is. There's only one thing I know. I was blind and now I see. And Jesus says, it's me. You've seen him. And it's he who is speaking to you. And he answers back and says, Lord. I believe. It's the verbal form of faith. I believe. I didn't even know you were the lifeboat I was in. And he worships him. Every time a servant of God is worshipped, such as Peter by the Romans, or such as the angel by the Apostle John, they stop the worship in its place because worship is owed only to God. Notice what is not stopped both giving him the terminology in the Greek, Lord, from the Septuagint translation, it translates the Hebrew word Yahweh, I believe. And he worships him, the one whom he had heard spoken of in the synagogue since he was a child, He worships him now, seeing him face to face, not only with his new physical eyes, but also with his new spiritual sight. Here he worships him. And then Jesus backs up and expresses one of the most divine statements in all the Gospel of John from his mouth For judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That is terrifying language. And if you're not scared of it, let me make you scared of it for a second. Because what Jesus is saying here, and what John is including this in, is to have us not go, this is not a matter of semantics. This is not a matter of, will your life work better this way with or without Jesus. No, this comes down to the judgment of the world. This comes down to the highest questions of cosmic significance. And so what he is explaining here is, it really has nothing to do with what you do with Christ. It has to do with what he is going to do with you. And that shows up in how you react to him. It shows up when he challenges you. This is the discussion of Christ's judgment and he is as clear as can be. Those who do not see, let me add my parenthetical here, those who are waiting on the Lord and his word. They couldn't see the future. Jesus looked like every other man walking around in Israel that day. They couldn't see the ramifications of what he was doing. They didn't know about the salvation of the Gentiles. They were blind, but they admitted they were blind. We depend upon the Lord for the outcome of these things. Don't you know the same thing of your own life, Christian? Do you know the future? Do you even know what this week will bring? Next? Next year? What sufferings? What joys? What heartaches? We don't see. We depend on the Lord for these things. Those who do not see, those who are waiting on the Lord and His word, they will now see. And it's why Jesus extends what has been a story connecting him to the creation, now he extends it to the other side and says, for judgment I came into this world, and as a bifurcation in humanity, those who don't see will see because I'll give them their sight. Those who are content with their sight, I'll make them blind. You say, my life is fine. I don't need Jesus. Fine. Good luck with that. And Jesus does the exact same thing here. He says... If you are content with your sight, I will make you more blind. you say, well, that seems mean. That's why he gave parables. You want to hear it? If you don't believe me, it's in Scripture. Matthew chapter 13. (coughs) You can turn there if you want. You can just listen to it if you would like. Jesus has said this throughout his ministry as to why he's doing these things. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? Subtext is parables are hard, they're complex, they're not clear, and not everyone understands you. And he answered them and said to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Notice the same overlaps. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and then I would heal them. But, blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your eyes, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Did you get it? I speak in parables that those whom I'm giving sight to will see, and those whom I'm not will not. The bifurcation right through the heart of Jerusalem. And all of it is dependent on what Christ is doing. All of it is dependent on what we see, what we are content with. We see it even when it comes down to whether we see our sin as a major problem or not. If you think your sin is not a major problem, you're not going to be looking for a Savior. Jesus says this also in the context of the Pharisees. He says those who are well, those who see themselves as healthy, don't need a physician. You think your problem of sin is not that big of a deal, you're not going to think I'm that big of a deal. Only those who are sick need a physician, and since I am the great physician, I'm here not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. You think you're seeing enough? You think you have enough spiritual insight that you don't need the word and works of Christ? Fine. Fine. You continue and see the outcome of that. And John is facing us head on with this. He's saying, if you think that in seeing you're going to be able to do this, you're going to find yourself just as blind as the Pharisees who could see. Rather than as seeing just like the blind man only because of Christ. It seems like a strange knot. It's really not that complicated. Either Christ is your solution or you are. That's it. Either Christ is your solution or you are your solution. He says this to them even at the end, and we're going to work our way there. Verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to them, wait, are we also blind? And Jesus then turns the whole thing directly focused on to sin. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Some of your Bibles probably translate that guilt. It's the same word. Now he connects their inability to see his revelation, his words and his works as revealing that sin is still the dominant force in their hearts. If you were at least to admit that you were blind, your sin would be forgiven just as this man. But now that you say, we see Your sin remains. That's no small matter. That's the center of the gospel. Either you are the answer to your life and your issues or Christ is. And if you think all the answers lie in you, then you is all you will ever rise to. And that's a sad state. The Pharisees could not bear the idea that somebody was higher than them in authority or in theology or in correctness or in anything else. And it turns out they were exactly wrong. But they couldn't rise above themselves. But if you think your answers lie in God, then God becomes your goal rather than yourself. He becomes the one who is teaching you rather than you just trying to digest this world on your own. You won't be able to do that. It'll eat you alive this world will eat you alive and spit you out and what christ is expressing here is you are not sufficient in yourself if you think you are sufficient in yourself you're going to learn that you are blind now when it comes to salvation it's the exact same thing and it connects it directly with sin if you think that you can fix your problem of sin good luck sin will eat you alive You may be able to overcome it for a day or for a week, maybe even a year. But your life is much longer than that. And the real issue is not the sin that's going to encroach upon you. It is the one who is sent into the world to judge it directly. And so what he's expressing here is this idea that if you think that you can solve the problem of sin, then you have no reason for Christ. And he is going to, in his teaching, push you further away from him. It's the purpose of the parables. Even what they have will be taken away from them. What confidence they have in their own sin. So what does a believing heart look like? That's what the unbelieving heart looks like. What does the believing heart look like? We do not have the solution in ourselves, and we look to Christ for it. Christian, do you sin? Christian, do you have sinful tendencies? Well, that sounds too nice. Christian, are there some days that you love your sin in secret? Are there some days that you believe its promises? Christian, are there some days where it tangles you up so much that you can't even look through it? Do you think you're sufficient to solve that? Don't ever look to yourself. Don't look to me for that solution. I've got my own tangles. Christ will be our Savior. He is the Lamb of God who will remove the sin of this world. And until we have the blessed moment to lay ourselves to rest in the care of our Savior, those tangles will seek to drag us down. Those sins that easily wrap us up, will lie to us, and at times in our foolishness, we will believe those lies, that if I just did this, I would be happier. Sure, it's wrong, but I don't want to be sad. I can lie about that. I can steal that. I cannot fulfill my promises here. I cannot worship the Lord here. I can love myself before Christ I can see a solution in me. Maybe I can solve my sin and I don't have to mention it to anyone else. That's not how this works. And in following Christ, we are not looking for a solution in ourselves. In following Christ, we readily admit we are not our own physician. We are not our own advocate and we are not our own hope. Christ is our hope. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief. Golly, look at the promise of that last verse. Sure, he is focused on the unbelieving hearts of the Pharisees here, but look at the promise underpinning it. If you are blind... You would have no guilt. If we depend upon Christ for salvation, our sin and our guilt are gone. There are some in the church's history that have denigrated that teaching. And said, if you say that to people, then they will just go out and sin all they want. My message to you, the believing heart doesn't aim at such things. The believing heart aims at Christ. And says, while he is my righteousness and my savior, I do not seek to take advantage of these things but instead to serve him out of a clear conscience. We do not look at ourselves for definition or clarity or salvation. We will always just be us if we do this alone in the dark. But Christ who is our light has appeared. And he shines into our hearts and he does throw so through his word. And he does so at his discretion, and we are ever thankful. Christian, if you are saved this day and trusting in Christ, you have a great deal of thanks to give to a God above. Because it was not you who first loved, but it was him. And it was not you who first saw, it was him who came to town looking for you. You personally, by name sought you, gave you sight, gave you repentance and faith, and a rock to stand on. Don't set it aside for yourself. Don't find solutions even for the Christian walk in yourself. That's why we're given the Spirit of God. That's why we're given one another. So that we can remind each other that the center of all of these things is not you, it's not me, it's not this church. It is Christ and Him crucified. And one day, He will take the sin of this world and rid us of it. And until that day, let us strive together to serve this Lord. And if you have sinned, excuse me, and since we have sinned, let us not lie to ourselves. Let us confess it. And let us enjoy the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your spirit. We thank you, Father, for believing hearts. We pray that you continually challenge us and grow us and conform us to the image of Christ that we may follow him no matter what the cost. We pray it in his name and for his sake.